Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the calm after the storm, ladies and gentlemen, and the world is settling down once more after the torrential rain, the flooding, the high winds and the travel chaos of the weekend. If you're still stuck in something, uh, by all means do let us know. And as the dust settles and the fallen trees are moved out of the way, there are one or two things I want to address. First of all, what exactly is going on in Ireland? They seem to have had an election that no one has won, but they're not quite sure how it's going to play out. Is this going to have any implications for Northern Ireland? Has Leo Varadkar lost his job? These are questions we need answers to. Next up, I'll be asking why this country appears to be in the grip of a high school playground feud between the Prime Minister's girlfriend and his enforcer. It seems Dominic Cummings is locked in a battle with Carrie Simmons over cabinet reshuffles, government policy and public announcements. Maybe it's time he sacked the two of them. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be taking your calls with newly elected MP Matt Vickers, one of the new intake of young working class Tory policy politicians who won seats in Labour heartlands in the north of England. 03444991000 is the number to call us on. Don't forget we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter as well. We'll also bring the latest on the coronavirus and the ramblings of some very wealthy champagne socialists at the Oscars. Only in Hollywood can you hear the bleatings of Joaquin Phoenix about the perils of milk consumption, the Communist Manifesto being quoted to a room full of people wearing millions of pounds worth of diamonds, and Brad Pitt railing against Donald Trump. Heaven help us. You're listening to me and watching me right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to Talk Radio. We've got lots of time to do lots of things between now and one o'clock, of course. You know how to get in touch. It's 0344 499 1000. You can text us on 87222. Start your text with the word talk. Now, everybody's day was kind of, uh, shall we say, disrupted yesterday, not by the coronavirus, but by uh, the storm that took hold of the country, Storm Kira, uh, which did quite a bit of damage up and down the country. Trees down, lots of flights cancelled, lots of trains didn't run, lots of cars uh, were uh, washed away by floods and various things. But we're back now uh, relative to normality weather-wise, and so we can talk now more uh, about the other disruptive story which has been going for quite a few weeks now, and that, of course, is the infectious disease uh, known as the coronavirus. Let's talk now to Dr Barrett Pancania, Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. Dr Barrett, a very good morning to you. 
Yeah, a very good morning to you and to your listeners. Good yes, thank, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's not going anywhere, this, is it? It seems to be sort of... I heard that last week the, there were less infections for two days in a row than there had been for the previous two weeks, which was thought to be a good thing. Was that something like a false dawn? Is it likely to continue to infect more people, do you think, for the next few weeks? Um, our supposition is that as this is a new virus and it is circulating widely in China... Uh, we expect more cases in other parts of the world. It is inevitable because that's the natural history of uh, these sort of infections. Uh, people with that infection will have traveled and there are large numbers of people moving across porous borders or recognized borders. And therefore, we can expect to see cases in other parts of the world. And Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has said today that the spread of the coronavirus is a serious and imminent threat. Those are his words. Uh, is he right about that? Uh, I, it is of concern. It is of much concern to us scientists and healthcare workers because we do not have therapeutics for this infection. And people who are vulnerable and get infected may become severely ill and some may die. So, of course, it is of great concern to people like myself, my colleagues, my consultants in communicable disease control, working hard to contain it. So our first approach is contain it. Our second approach is when we fail with the containment, you know, um, to reduce the spread as much as is possible. And what do you make of these stories about the, uh, the sort of super spreader? Uh, supposedly a businessman who went to Singapore may have picked up the virus there, then went to, I believe, a ski lodge and infected some people there, may have infected other people on planes and this kind of thing. Well, it's, it's just a term, but what it really is saying is we don't know who, when they are infected and infectious, um, how infectious they are. But roughly speaking, we feel that on average one case of a coronavirus infection is generating about 2.5 additional cases. So, so that's on average that we find with the coronavirus outbreak at the moment. Right. And we appear to now have uh, two designated hospitals, Arrows Park Hospital in the Wirral, where I think the first group of uh, evacuees, if you like, from China were taken, uh, and now Kent's Hill Park in Milton Keynes, uh, where some other Britons evacuated from Wuhan uh, have been transferred. So um, those are the two, I suppose, hotspots, if you like. Well, they're not hotspots as such, because they're just uh, places where our patients may be uh, expertly managed and uh, contained and you build up a level of expertise and and rhythm so it is uh, only sensible that instead of treating them in several different outlets you you treat them in designated one two three or four places because it's a lot more easier to have that um, build up of expertise and rhythm about you know what to do when we have yeah. patients because presumably the first group of people who were sent to the Wirral must be nearly due to be released, mustn't they? Yes, indeed. And so, remember, they are just not patients as such, but they're held in quarantine right. because they came from a, uh, a hotspot, i.e. where the infection first arose and was spreading. And so as far as uh, what happens next is concerned, we've had, I think, 795 people tested for the coronavirus in the UK, eight positive. Does that mean that that figure of about 1% uh, of people being infected is about right? And then of that, of that figure, say 2% of the 1%, if you like, uh, would be at risk of death? 
Uh, no, this is very difficult to 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 trans translocate that data uh, to the UK because in the UK we have a healthcare population right. and and we have healthcare facilities. So um, we hold our braces with respect to the UK. We don't know. We don't know what will be the case if and when the virus is widely circulating in the UK. And I use the word if and when. Mm. It may not happen. So our strategy is hold it back as much as we can. And if we are successful, most people in the United Kingdom will say, oh, that was good. And that is what I would like to do is contain it and, and not create patience. So as far as people's kind of general, I suppose, uh, conduct is concerned regarding their own health, they shouldn't really worry too much. Well, they should be aware and they should be concerned and they should behave. And this is a serious global issue. Therefore, anyone who has been in contact with somebody from uh, a country where there is spread of this infection uh, and they become unwell, even if they are very mildly unwell, uh, please remove yourself from circulation, go home, call 111 or your GP for further instructions. Do not turn up at the hospital or to your GP practice. What you must do is remove yourself from circulation. That's point number one. Point number two, generally and for everyone, is maintain good hygiene. Cough and sneeze into a tissue paper, wash your hands, dispose of the tissue paper properly, dry your hands thoroughly. And those are good measures. And one more thing, wash your hands before you sit down to eat. Mm. Well, listen, I've got into the habit of washing my hands after every time of using the tube, um, which has, has worked up until about a month ago very well for me. But I've got this cold that I can't shake off, right? How do I know it's not coronavirus? Well, I know it isn't. And it's so nice for me to be able to say with confidence it's not coronavirus. Okay. Because, because it's not circulating in the United Kingdom. And only when it is widely circulating in the United Kingdom can you start sort of speculating that, ooh, it might be coronavirus. Right now, sitting at the end of a telephone line, I can say to you, you haven't got coronavirus. Okay. Are you sure that I wasn't on the tube with somebody who might have had it? Unlikely. Highly unlikely. Okay. I mean, it's not a zero case, but unlikely, because it's not widely circulating in the UK at the moment. Okay. Dr. Barrett Pankania, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, he's the senior clinical lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. I'm pretty sure I haven't got coronavirus, you know, because I probably wouldn't feel um, as well as I do. But I do have this cold that I can't get rid of. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it keeps coming back. I don't know what's going on, uh, but neither do you. So don't bother calling in and telling me that I've got it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, one of the most magnificent things that's ever happened, uh, I'd have to say, and quite clearly did happen, uh, was the uh, exit poll that came out around about 10 o'clock on December the 12th, the night of the election count, when it turned out that the Tory party had got in with a majority of 80 seats. That's 80 seats. Now, that seems like an incredible number, uh, but it was helped by one man, Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South. And Matt is here with us. Matt, very good morning to you. Good morning. Welcome to Talk Radio, and welcome, I suppose, to your first uh, term in the Parliament. Yeah, how's yep. it going? I'm finding my way around. Oh, yeah? uh, I'm finding my way around London as well. I managed to navigate my way here myself on well the tube. Done. It's impressive. It's, it's not impressive. that far. I mean, it's on the Jubilee <laughs> line. And the great thing about London is if the, the tube's working, it's fine. If the tube's not working, it's an absolute nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And what it, have you found? I saw that you've been writing about uh, discovering that Parliament's a little bit like Hogwarts. It is. Harry it's very much like Hogwarts. It, it is a it's, bit like that, isn't it? There's lots of tradition and lots of. And sometimes it's a bit irritating, actually. Yeah. But actually, it's still golden. It's part of the magic, and it's. 
It's quite decrepit be here, yeah. as well, isn't it? I mean, when you walk around the inside of the house, of the Palace of Westminster, you realise just how old it actually is. Yeah, and there's a, there's a bit of a rodent problem going on as is well. Is there? Yeah, you've got to keep your cookies in your cookie jar. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you wouldn't so... want to leave any biscuits out or anything yeah. like that. Well, it's also the fox ran into uh, yeah. Paul Cullis' house yeah, yeah, the other yeah. night. Yeah. So, it's... I mean, have you got, like, uh, an office now? Have you, are you still waiting for that? We have. It was a long time coming. We've got an office, uh, and I've done all right. So have my you? mates have got smaller offices than me, and I've even got a window. I've got a window. That's very unusual. I've got a computer. I've got a telephone. Okay. I'm laughing. That's good. And, of course, you get to stop working on Thursday for a couple of days, don't you? You get, like, your first recess. You've only been, you've only been there, what, six weeks, and you yeah, get another I think, holiday. I think, to some extent, you get these... Fridays off, but that's when the real work happens. That's when you yes. start trailing around the constituency, dealing with the right. dog poo and the pottles and the skulls. Are you one the... of those who wasn't expecting to win? Because obviously, you know, there's been a few um, new MPs that we've spoken to who who have been. They're not sort of being quite as as out there as that, but they're saying they weren't they weren't sure they were going to win. Certainly, yeah. So my seat's a bit of a flip flopper. Mm. Um, so we we knew if Boris was going back in with there with the majority, it probably meant that I had to win. Right. Uh, otherwise, I had a problem. Right. Um, but I'm a bit of a pessimist. So throughout the election, we're looking at all these websites with their polls and they're up and they're down and the big MRP poll that comes mm. out on a Tuesday. Um, I'm I'm a natural pessimist, but this big MRP poll came out on the Tuesday before the election and had us at a score draw: forty-five point zero zero to me and forty-five point zero zero to him. Um, even on the night when that exit poll came out and a couple of my mates texted me, it was like, I'm not sure. You, Don't know, you count, can wait yeah. until we get there. But that was a big win, though, wasn't it? Over 5,000 of the majority. It was. I'm very happy. I'm very happy. And did you get, what did you get from the people on the doorstep when you were talking to them? The doorstep. So the, you look at these polls online, they, did, they, didn't, they didn't quite link to what was happening on the doorstep because you knocked on the door and all the people you thought might not be with you mm. were most definitely with you. Yes. It was the get effing Brexit done you know right. like they, they were with you they were on it they felt disconnected from the Labour Party in all sorts of ways yeah. um, side as well as the, the larger Brexit story there's a story in side about a Labour Party that's been at the helm of everything and made a mess of it. Mm. Um, well, it's very re re reminiscent, I would say, of what happened in Scotland. I worked in Scotland for a long time, and the Labour Party thought they had Scotland locked down. They thought that nobody would ever in a million years vote for any other party. And as time went on, as the sort of Scottish Parliament became more mature, it became clear that an awful lot of people who lived in these Labour heartlands weren't very happy that the Labour Party hadn't really done anything for them, that basically they were still living in poverty, they were still having to deal with the same social problems that they'd had, the same drug problems, the same alcohol problems, all of that. And yet the, the, these people who regarded them as, as their heartland were doing nothing to fix it. Suddenly the SNP came along, and you can, you can argue that they haven't done much either, but people have now started voting for parties other than Labour in Scotland. And I wonder if the north of England is going to be like that now. I think in Teesside, so in Teesside we've got a, we have a load of Labour councils, and the majority of them got shown the door mm. uh, recently but they they see that the council tax just goes up by the max every time they see the waste they were unhappy about that and then the most the most visual uh difference is we recently had the combined authority maryland well we recently we've had a few years of it yeah. now but we put a tory in charge ben hoochin amazing guy um and we had this airport a bit of regional pride mm. in our local airport the labor party had sold it out to a well, I think they were planning on building a house, a house in the state on it. But basically it was ran down, ran into the ground, yeah. plans for closure. Ben rocks up, tells us he's going to buy back that airport. We are going to have our regional airport. Yeah. People got behind him. It's happened. We've got an airport. And that's, got what, new and that's what the people of Stockton are going to be looking for, isn't it? Because Delivery. Boris Johnson talks about helping those people whose, whose votes that you've sort of borrowed, if you like, or you've rented. Um, you know, what else can you do or can you deliver for, for Stockton and for the, that part of the, of the world? Yes, yeah, so I, think, I think there's a... Um, it's about 
Well, I think the money that we get, we're going to get, we are going to bang the drum down here. There's a flock of us now, and we right. are banging that drum, and they're very receptive to it. They're listening, they're engaging. Um, we, it's, it's about investment in infrastructure. It's about investment in education. Um, I had this sort of, you know, this, this phrase about, you know, you can give a man a fish and he'll feed yourself for a day, or you can give him the, the means to fish and he'll yeah. feed yourself. Well, actually, we don't want no fish. Right. We want the means to fish for ourselves, develop that economic growth. We want the infrastructure. Well, you don't want somebody else coming in and nicking all the fish, basically, yeah. from your <laughs> I mean, that's the way you want to go. You want to get your own fish out of the sea and, and eat it. But, of course, a lot of the fish that is fished even by uh, British uh, boats is actually sold to Europe anyway because they eat a lot more fish than we do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big industry and it's a big part of, of, of what used to be the sort of, uh, you know, the coastal towns of this country. But is it is it still that big? I've blown us down the fishing line there. I wasn't really talking about fish directly. but yeah. we, 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 Well, we're on it now. Yeah, so we're on it. To, we, are, you know. we are. Uh, <laughs> fishing. I th- well, I, I don't know that it is as big as it was, but hopefully we'll see a return to some of those mm. glory days because we'll have the... Well, we're, we're an independent coastal state once again. Well, exactly right. Now, we've also got, we think, the HS2 decision coming this week. We're told uh, that that will help the north of England, but everybody I talk to in the north of England says, actually, we couldn't care less about HS2. What we want is proper rail infrastructure that's in the north rather than just from Birmingham to London. After HS2, we're still going back to Freeport's discussion. But the, free, <laughs> the, the HS2 thing, the thing with HS2 is we see the huge sum of money. We see the we see all that laid out before us. Um, there's a review going into that. We'll get facts. We'll be able mm. to make an informed decision on that. Um, at the same time, we've got a lot of local asks. We've got things that we want up north, yeah. um, whether that be railway station investment, improvements in lines that will hook us up in a much yeah. better way, um, improvements in roads, but people are actually seeing that in the northeast already. So we just had in a week ago eight point five million uh, announced for my little railway station, right. uh, which is actually a fantastic railway station. We're going to hook it up to a business park. We're going to make it disabled access friendly. Money's coming. We've got pinch points in the A19, major road in my part of the world, um, and people have queued in traffic there for forty five minutes for mm. decades. Right. Actually, the pinch, we're getting the improvement. There is money starting to flow, and people can. These projects that we thought were dreams, they were never going to happen. They're really happening. They're really happening now. And how's it got... working for you guys in 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 Parliament? Because you know we we know the Tory Party for a long time has always had little kind of cliques of people. For the first time, they seem to all be getting along with each other. But nobody's sure how long that's going to last. I mean, who do you kind of who do you go to when you want something uh, done in government? The the doors are open. They've got to get through that lobby, and we're in their way in Parliament. Mm. Every time they walk through the lobby with our wish lists right. and our begging lists and what we want, uh-huh. uh, and it sounds to be working quite effectively right. at the and moment. And as you say, they are they do they do seem to be listening. Yeah, there is an mm. engagement. They know that the people of the North East place their trust in them. They've got to repay that trust. Right. And do you think that the people of the North East will be, will be effectively kind of um, satisfied, I suppose is the word, rather than bought off, uh, if, you, if you do what you said you were going to do? And they will continue then to vote Tory? I think that people will now make an informed decision. Um, anybody who was, who was sheep-like and voted that way because their parents told them to vote that yeah. way and they voted that way before them, now... They've, they've breached that line um, and they'll make an informed decision. They'll look at who's delivering for them. And at the next election, I don't want them to go in there and feel they've got to vote conservative. I want them to look at what's mm. gone on, look at what the choice is before them, look at what might happen with the economy, with local services, with investment, and make an informed decision. Yeah, because you won't have Brexit on your side, yeah. um, presumably uh, in five years' time. I'm not going to push forward to five years, because that's quite a long way off. But, I mean, in terms of the way that that you are kind of representative of a new of a new breed of Tory politician, I suppose, because you're very much from a working-class background. You know, you're from the area, you haven't been parachuted in, you're not a carpetbagger. You know, is that something that you think is important as far as where you come from? I think when you look, actually, at the, the, the benches, the green benches, there's a few of us around now. There's, you know, it's, it's a mixed bench. It's yeah. not this sort of 
stereotypical. But you know how Labour have got this kind of myth out there that, you know, they're all public school boys, you know, you're all kind of in the Bullingdon Club, you sit around drinking claret every night and, you know, throwing money at the poor and all that. You know, that's not you at all, is it? No, I think when you look at you look at their benches and look at the maker of yeah. their front bench and the people who are running for leader, etc., etc., you find there's quite a lot of them there, but... Mm. I think it's about being a bit more mature than than that and trying to divide people up in the way that they do. Yes. Um, actually, I sit alongside people from all sorts of backgrounds. We mm. make equal, probably different contributions, but we make equal contributions. How I was saying, bringing different perspectives. And yeah. That's all that all adds a lot of value. Yeah, of course. And what do you make of the way that uh, the government is so far doing uh, under Boris Johnson? Because people are saying, you know, they're talking about a, a, a mansion tax, they're talking about you know, um, the immigration point system actually bringing more people in rather than less. They're talking about um, things perhaps which you wouldn't associate with, with a, with a right-wing Conservative government. I mean, I'm not saying it is a right-wing Conservative government, but that's the kind of perception that Boris Johnson would, would be doing. The mansion tax is all speculation at this point, yeah. isn't it? And then, then the mansion tax all depends on context and what's actually involved in it. We'll see when the budget comes yeah. about that. I think on immigration, we're Australian points-based system. Actually, post-Brexit, we're going to have a... a fair immigration system that means whether you are an EU national or elsewhere we, you've got a fair shout yeah. we're going to look at you, not in the eyes of whether you're from the EU or elsewhere, you're going to have a, a real shout and a lot of the people working in the NHS don't come from the EU right. actually, we're going to make informed decisions national interest first and have an immigration system that, that fits and the also needs of the it is, It's a pretty um, good sign that, that Britain is a place that people want to come and live in and want to come and work in that 2 million people uh, from the European Union have actually applied to stay which was another one of those Brexit myths that we were told wasn't going to happen. Oh, everybody's going to leave. It's going to be a hostile environment. Nobody's going to want to be here. Well, guess what? They actually want to stay. Yeah, I think I think you're completely right. I think uh, the, the myths around immigration and Brexit, I don't think people voted on the basis of immigration in the way that people make out. The public aren't stupid. Mm. You know, these people tell us we were stupid and we didn't know what we were voting for. No, we did know what we were voting for and it's happening now. Yeah, and it's happening and actually it's happening without very many people obsessing about it in the same way that they used to. I mean, we kind of came back to, uh, to, to this show last week after Brexit had happened the previous Friday, and we were actually able to do the show on the Monday practically without even mentioning it, because it's become just nothing. You know, it's like, OK, so now we've, we've now left the European Union, let's just get on with it. Yeah, and the sky hasn't fallen, no. and there's not anarchy on the street, we're, yeah, we're doing all right. Yeah, but of course people will say, oh, that's because we haven't left yet, but in well, fact they've been saying that there's going to be anarchy the, on the street and the sky's going to fall in ever since the referendum. The t the, these people talked about the, the confidence in the markets being shot the minute the referendum result yeah. came in. It didn't happen, we're out, it hasn't happened. Actually, we're going places, we're opening the door, instead of looking into Europe, we're looking out to yes. the world. No, I think you're absolutely right. We're talking to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stocks in South. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're here, of course, uh, and we're live-streamed on YouTube, uh, on Facebook and on uh, the uh, Twitter feed as well. Uh, what you can do, of course, if you don't hear the whole show, is you can play it back on YouTube uh, and listen and watch the whole show at any time, which is always uh, something that people like to do. You can also get our podcast, which comes out every single day as well. Right now, though, uh, we're going to talk to Professor Fergal Cochrane, Professor of International Conflict Analysis and author of Northern Ireland, The Reluctant Peace, because I was saying earlier, uh, to our uh, Tory MP who was in, Matt Vickers. What on earth is going on in Ireland? And when are we going to find out precisely uh, whatever has happened and what it does, in fact, mean? So let's find out from Fiergel uh, what he's got to say about it. Fiergel, very good uh, morning to you, I should say. Uh, morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, it looks as though Sinn Féin have done incredibly well here, doesn't it, in terms of uh, the three-way tie? Because they would be... I seem to remember watching Leo Varadkar talking about... Um, Sinn Féin before the actual voting process on Saturday, saying, well, just because they get 20% of the vote doesn't entitle them to go into a coalition with anyone. But it's all kind of up, yeah. up for grabs now, isn't it? It is very much so. I mean, everybody's sort of looking at this as a sort of a seismic change, because we've now got a three-party system, uh, replacing you know, what was very much a two-party system. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Varadkar's right in that sense. You know, there's no obligation... Or a party to you know have a coalition with Sinn Féin, but the, there is going to be a sort of a pressure for that because pretty much everybody would admit that this was you know a vote for change, particularly amongst the young. If you look at the dem you know the, the, the voting patterns, it's very much the sort of younger cohort of people voting for Sinn Féin. Right. I mean, and, and right across the country as well. So it's, you know it's not like it's just like a metropolitan sort of centre thing. So Sinn Féin's view will be. You know that there is this sort of wave of of of, of support for for something different, and the problem for Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, the two sort of traditional biggest parties, is that if they have a coalition with each other, it's going to look like more of the same. Yes, exactly right. And it looks as though Sinn Féin may have, albeit only one or two points more, it looks like they may have more points than both of those um, previously kind of more traditional parties. I, I suppose that the thing to point out is that it's a proportional representation electoral system. So, so the headlines today, you know, are that Sinn Féin are the largest party, but that's probably not going to stay the case, um, you know, once you get the second, third, fourth count happening. So um, Fianna Foyle will probably end up as the largest party in terms of seats um, at the end of the day. Uh, but, the, but, you know, Sinn Féin ran a lot less candidates. Right. You know, they only ran 40-odd candidates. So they may be kicking themselves if they'd run more candidates, they may have added up with more seats. Well, quite. And what is it that you would say Sinn Féin actually knew, do now stand for? I mean, obviously they all stand for a united Ireland. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, um, what, what, what else is their message? Well, they very much fought the election on economic issues. You know, on housing, there's a housing crisis in Ireland. There's a massive homelessness crisis. Uh, and also on a sort of increasing taxes to pay for public services. So, you know, they weren't really campaigning on Brexit, and Brexit was a very small issue, like a 1%, mm. you know, very low, very, very low. Um, so it was very much a ticket of change, of economic change, of, you know, helping the lower paid and sort of public sector 
workers. You know, and that was their message. Right. So that was quite canny. You know, they didn't they didn't campaign on on border poll. They didn't campaign on United Ireland and those sorts of issues. It's very much bread and butter politics. Right. And up in the north, of course, they're very much seen as the kind of still the, the political uh, explanation, if you like, for want of a better word, uh, of some of the, the, the Catholic communities there and some of the Republican communities there as well, uh, for good or ill. I mean, they're presumably perceived slightly differently in the south, are they? Well, that's the, I mean, the interesting... The other thing probably to point out is that Jerry Adams is no longer president of the party. Right. And, you know, the, the president of the party is now a Dubliner. Uh, so that also probably had a... You know, an element of uh, of, of impact, mm. and so yes, you know, they're in government in the north now, and uh, they may well be in government in the south as well. But their, I suppose their um, their policy agenda is, you know, can be ironically slightly different than those two parts of the island. Mm. You know, so the I, think, I suppose the interesting thing now, and it's probably going to be quite a while in terms of talking between these parties, what you know, what's the price going to be? for uh, Sinn Féin to enter government, because it's quite a risk for them to do that. Yeah, you know, if, if, they, if they enter government, they're going to want some policy promises uh, to protect themselves if it looks like, well, it's the same old, same old, yes. you know, and that would be very damaging. And I suppose the other question is, can they be kept out of government, you know, go around the other way? You know, what, yeah. what sort of, you know, what sort of mandate could uh, Fine Gael and, and Fianna Fáil have to keep them out? Yeah, well, it's interesting that, you know, Fine Gael, I think, probably won't go into coalition with them. I mean, they've already said that. I mean, both of them have said it. But Fianna Fáil are now starting to use phrases, you know, like, well, you know, their policy incompatibilities. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, those, are, those are solvable. Let's face it. So I think, I think that, um, I think, you know, several things are possible. Another election, but nobody wants that. Um, I think Fianna Gael get into opposition is quite likely. Um, uh, you know, uh, but I also think a coalition with Fianna Foil is probably that's where I put my money. Right? Right. And at the, you know, at the end of the day, after a few weeks. But, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of talking to be done before a government's going to be formed. Sure. And, I mean, I'm told that, that they're quite pro-EU, Sinn Féin. What would this mean, potentially, for whatever happens to the border between the Republic and, and Northern Ireland? And indeed, if there was to be some kind of a move towards the United Ireland, what would the EU's view be of that? Uh, well, the EU's view is already clear, um, because they've said that um, if there was Irish reunification, then Ireland would not have to reapply for a membership. Mm. Uh, they would automatically be a member. Right. Uh, so that actually gives Sinn Féin a very good uh, sort of slogan, if you like, about a border poll, which is to say, if you want to be European, then vote for re Irish unity, you know, and uh, that's the way they're going to come at it, probably. Uh, I, I think the EU uh, probably wouldn't have a view, or certainly wouldn't have a negative view of that. Right. Uh, but that would solve a lot of problems in terms of the customs union and so on. And, well, you it know, would, but I don't suppose the DUP <laughs> would be too happy about it. No, they certainly, they certainly wouldn't be. And um, you know, the DUP have already said it's a protest vote, which to some degree it is. But um, the issue of Irish unity now, you know, is certainly on the on the on the table in a way that it wasn't before Brexit, mm. you know? It was just a theoretical idea. Yeah. I think that... But there, there's, a big, there's a big issue there for Irish nationalism as well, which is to say, how do you make a united Ireland attractive to unionists? You know, because, uh, because 
you know, people in the Republic of Ireland do not really want a reluctant one million people joining mm. their state. No. So there's, there are lots of conversations to be had within unionism and nationalism, I think, about the future. Yeah, well, unionists uh, don't wish to either be part of something which is not the United Kingdom, do they? No, they certainly don't. But um, if, but if there was a border poll, it's not really going to be the DUP voters who are going to sort of be deciding that in a, in a way. Right. It's going to be the sort of liberal unionists, mm. you know, the sort of 20% of small U unionists and 20% of small M nationalists, mm. if you like, that sort, of, that sort of moderate middle ground, you know, that, that, that's going to be the sort of swing vote. And, right. um, everybody's going to be sort of after them, I think, when it, when it comes to that sort of debate, which is to say, you know, you're voting for the future, here's the agenda. But I think all of those all of those conversations are yet to be had, and, and really there's been very little debate about it so far. So is this um, the coming of age of Sinn Féin, in a way? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Gerry Adams is no longer associated as closely as he was. You know, the North and Sinn Féin have got a slightly different relationship in terms of the way that they represent the people. But for, for, for the young people, presumably, of, of, of the Republic, this is not the political wing of the IRA they voted for. No, I mean, I, th- I think it's a, it's a, we're, we're definitely in a sort of transitional moment in Irish politics. Yeah. Um, now, the issue for Sinn Féin is that if they do go into coalition, they're going to have to deliver and, and not just become a, sort of a protest party. Yeah. They're going to have to be able to implement an agenda, stand over that um, and, and, and say that they have actually changed. You know, they've delivered policies that are actually benefiting people. So I think that's the I think I, I think, uh, though, that you know they've now got their agenda on the very much on the front burner of of um, Irish politics. Uh, these are you know they can't. I mean, a few elections ago they were in single digits in terms of seats. They're now probably going to be in the sort of thirty-seven seats or so. You know, uh, so they've had massive growth um, in the Doyle in the Parliament, but they haven't had massive influence. I think now they're probably going to have more influence, and in the, it's up to them really. Mm. Uh, to you know, can they actually deliver in a way that's going to re- retain popularity, uh, or are they just going to be seen as another another political party who you know lots of promises but didn't deliver? So didn't deliver, that's, yeah. the next, that's the next that's the next challenge for them. And what about Leo Varadkar himself? Is he out of a, out of a job now as, as prime minister? Certainly. <laughs> well, there's, there are there are rumours you know this morning that that certain you know people are sort of starting to, to mumble that maybe he should retire and open the you know open the door for a successor. Mm. Um, I'm not. That's that's going to be a pretty hard pill for him to swallow after everything that he did for the European Union. Yes, but you know, this, I think it was it Clinton who said the economy stupid uh, <laughs> in elections, yeah. and you know it wasn't Brexit and it wasn't foreign policy. It was bread and butter uh, issues. Uh, it was the economy. It was housing. It was homelessness. A taxation, and it was sort of you know the, the young people's futures mm. in living living in the living in the country. And Fine Gael, even though they're very socially liberal, uh, they're economically conservative, and that agenda really hasn't, you know, it hasn't been popular. And uh, uh, Veradkar is going to have to, I suppose, front up to that failure. Ah, well, I think there'll be an awful lot of people on this side of the Irish Sea who'd be quite happy to see him go, to be honest. Professor, thanks very much indeed. Professor Fergal Cochrane there, uh, from uh, author of Northern Ireland, The Reluctant Peace. Fascinating what's happening over there, uh, and very interesting too, and I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing more uh, from our friends and colleagues over in uh, Ireland, in the Republic and in the North, about where it all goes from here. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Matthew Wright coming up, of course, at one o'clock, along with Kevin O'Sullivan. Uh, some of you may still be able to squeeze a call or two in before the end of the show, though. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Right now, though, we're going to speak to our favourite space expert, Greg Smy-Rumsby from astronomynow.com, because... Very exciting, this. About four o'clock this morning, I think I'm right in saying, um, in uh, Florida, uh, that is our time rather than their time, uh, a probe took off, a spacecraft launched aboard an Atlas rocket, lifted off from Cape Canaveral, uh, and it's going to head towards the sun. It's going to get so close to the sun that they have to be careful not to make the uh, internal sort of uh, instruments of the uh, rocket melt because they're going to be closer to Mercury. Greg, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Yeah, good afternoon. This is exciting, isn't it? It is very exciting. I didn't watch it, by the way. Didn't not you? Not at that time of the morning. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, presumably you're too busy hours. avoiding getting blown into the next week, presumably, by the storm <laughs> Kira. Well, you, you see, you're, you're right in a way, because our weather is affected by, by the sun, and we do need to understand the sun better. And, of course, mm. it's a difficult thing to study, because it's, it's fundamentally hot. Yes. So when you want to get up close to it, you're, you're, you're going to be cooked unless you can do particular things uh, to your spacecraft to protect it. Yes. But it has got quite a number of instruments on, and several of them are, are, are UK-built uh, uh, instruments, which is nice to know. Yeah. Now, it was only last week, I think, that we saw that remarkable picture of the sort of surface of the sun, um, which I think came from a solar telescope on Hawaii. But it looked almost like a honeycomb of some kind. It's just weird stuff. Each one of those bubbles is about the size of Texas. I think the wow. Americans like to, like to quote that. Um, but yes, uh, huge um, uh, detail, huge amounts of detail and the, and the even more delicate detail between some of those uh, cells as they sort of seem to make contact with each other. It's a little bit like boiling porridge. It's, it's, a, it's a method whereby the sun can release its solar energy from the core. It's, mm. a, it's a bubbling turmoil of, of energy. And is it the solar energy that affects our climate? Then? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, over time, we, we can see slight variations to our climate. Naturally, I have to say, uh, it's, it's the unnatural stuff we need to be more aware of. Mm. But if we understand the sun better, we'll understand uh, the Earth and how it was built and how the planets were built and where our sun is going in the future and how it might behave in the future as well. And this is a joint effort from the European Space Agency and NASA as well, right? Uh, NASA, yes. Uh, I mean, there's the uh, Parker Solar Probe, which is also uh, on its way to the sun. Uh, they are slightly different. One has, I think, four instruments on, which is the Parker Solar Probe, and the European Space Agency one, which, of course, is the Solar Orbiter, the one launched this morning, that has ten instruments on board, uh, some of which have to be heated up. Is, is that not the most bizarre thing? <laughs> because they're inside the belly of the spacecraft and they've got this huge heat shield on one side of it, it gets a bit cool inside, weirdly. It, it, it's actually not hot inside the spacecraft. It's only hot when you point an yeah. instrument towards the sun. That is weird, isn't it? And also, the, mm. I've, been, I've been reading they're going to be trying to take sort of, you know, pictures, I suppose, through very, very small peepholes, which will then have to be closed up so that the sun rays don't melt what's inside the, the spaceship. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. Yes, they, they have a, a short little window, um, but it, it, it sits inside a nice sort of roundish orbit, slightly closer to the sun than the planet Mercury, compared to the uh, Parker Solar Probe, uh, which gets much closer to the sun, it, it, about 6 million kilometres as opposed to about 42 million kilometres. Uh, so there's quite a big difference, but they are effectively studying slightly different parts of the sun's environment and in different ways. So we'll hopefully build a much better picture of what is what's going on inside the sun and how far have we got to, to this point before i mean how close have we got to the sun before this was launched 
Uh, not very close. I mean, the sun is a difficult beast. And, you know, modern day engineering with the way we can process data much more quickly and the way a spacecraft can be built uh, and our understanding of protecting those spacecraft has improved enormously over the years. So the, these two spacecraft really are the sort of bona fide ways of, of studying the sun. It's fascinating to me, this. And so what will happen uh, as it goes today up towards the sun? I mean, I presume it's going to take quite a long time to get there. It, it is going to take a long time. I, I, this is going to sound a bit weird. It's got to slow down. Uh, because the Earth is moving around the sun at about a, just a little over 100,000 kilometres per hour. And in order to slip towards the sun, you've sort of got to slow it down. Yes. But it's going to do a number of flybys of, of, of planets such as Venus, and that will hopefully uh, put it into a more controlled environment. So as it gets towards its uh, actual orbit inside that of Mercury, everything will, will take a while, but we'll also get a more slow input of data studying the sun from further out and then studying the sun closer to. And all that really does help. There's also some instruments on board that do, do far seeing. They actually look away from the sun and understand its magnetic environment, its plasma environment, all these other shortwave radiation that also affects the sun and how it sits in space itself as a star. Right. And presumably, obviously, it's, it's an unmanned mission, but is, it, is there a risk that it could be destroyed by the sun by going too close to it? It will eventually, like yeah. It will eventually be cooked when it, when it stops working. It, um, it has a heat shield which is partly made out of crushed up cow bones. I know that sounds completely really? bonkers. Yeah, really. Don't it's, tell Whackham Phoenix, whatever you do. <laughs> it's, it's a completely <laughs> bonkers mix. But, you know, cow bones? Yeah, it is. It's it's sort of like the glue, I suppose. Wow. But yeah, it, it's going to hopefully keep the instruments nice and you know not too hot. I thought it was made of titanium, but I guess titanium well, and cow are, bones is the... lots of titanium on board, obviously. But there are bits that you need to sort of use other technologies to protect the the delicate instruments inside. Yeah, and as far as like sunstorms and things like that, are, are, are those things that we know much about, or is this going to find? Is this going to help us learn more? You, you, Mike, you're absolutely right. We, we've had some, we've had some uh, rather strange disasters in the past, which luckily haven't affected us too much. Back in 1989, we had a CME, a coronal mass ejection, and it affected the north part of the United States. Had it been in the daytime, I think the results would have been uh, very, very different. Yes. It would not have been a very pleasant environment. We're building new spacecraft uh, in orbiting the Earth for our telecommunications, and that's absolutely vital. But also ground systems are also getting more compliant with the possibility of the sun becoming a bit burpy and burping out nasty bits of stuff, which we don't want uh, crashing into the Earth's atmosphere and then obviously down to the ground. It'll short out substations and, mm. and power stations and power grids, and we'll, we'll be in a really difficult situation. So these CMEs, we need to understand them better, and these two spacecraft are going to do exactly that. And could they then possibly predict them in the future then and say, well, this is coming? You're, you're, so you're hitting every button. All those lily pads. I'm learning a lot from you. About. That's what it is, Greg. Oh, well, you see, the point is, that's exactly what we want to try and do. We want to try and build a much better model of the sun. Mm. I'll give you an example. A Betelgeuse, a star in Orion, has been in the news because it's fading. But it may be actually getting brighter. Right. I know that sounds absolutely weird, but it's... CMEs, its coronal mass ejections, because this is a giant star, are so powerful that it spits out soot. And the soot from the star dims its light, despite the fact that the star is actually getting brighter. Huh. Although that's not necessarily the only answer. There are other, other scientists coming up with other ideas as well. But it isn't going to go bang. But it is something we need to study, because at the moment, we start on chapter five of the book about stars. 
So if we can understand our sun, we'll get the other chapters, maybe not in total focus yet, but in a bit more detail. Yeah, funnily enough, as we speak, I'm actually watching the launch going ahead earlier on this morning. So there's a certain synergy even about the way that we're, uh, the way that we're talking. Is there somewhere where we can watch it as, as such anywhere? No, no, it'll be data trickling in. Uh, every now and then it's going to be convenient to send the data back to the Earth. I mean, if the spacecraft is on the other side of the sun, mm. we can't pick up the data because the sun is a, is a nasty electromagnetic storm and we can't get the data back. So the spacecraft, both solar probe and also um, uh, solar orbiter, have to be in the right part of the sky for our deep space network to pick up the data. Yeah. No, there's no live, there's no live transmissions. Because we're so used bundle. to watching everything live now that you just assume <laughs> there will be, you know, that there's, where's the, where, you know, where's the dash cam on it? You oh, know? <laughs> there will be uh, types of dash cam because there will be movies of the solar surface bubbling away and right. stuff like that. But they won't necessarily be just invisible light. So don't expect anything normal. Is that the right word? Yeah, I think I so, yeah. Because, I mean, well, the trouble is, when you say when you said earlier, and you said it with, with such casualness about how fast we are revolving around the sun, it's, you kind of, you can't, I can't take that in, really. Just tell me again how fast <laughs> we're going. Uh, 107,000 kilometres every hour. I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, d d Mike, you're not alone. I can't do it. I can't imagine how fast that is. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm looking out the window fast. and I'm going, why, why can I not see anything moving? You know. But we're also spinning. We're yeah. spinning. And at these latitudes, we're spinning at about 1,000 kilometres an hour. Amazing. Amazing. And that's why they put rockets at the equator, because they don't have to fill it up with extra fuel to get the 1,000 kilometres per hour. Right. They're already standing on the launch pad, travelling at 1,000 kilometres an hour relative to a fixed point in space. Remarkable. Well, so when will we see, when will we see the first fruits of this particular journey, do you think? Uh, it won't be for quite, quite a number of years, actually. Oh, it, really? It, it, there will be some stuff coming back. But the real hardcore stuff won't be for a few years because we've got to go around Venus and we've got to circularize the orbit and get it right in the right location within that orbit of, Mar of Mercury. And once it's all stable, it'll then be giving us the high fidelity stuff back. Right. So I think the honest answer is a few years yet. OK, well, it's fascinating stuff, Greg. Thank you, as ever, uh, for pointing it all out to us. Greg Smythe Rumsby from AstronomyNow.com. What a remarkable world we live in and what an incredible thing that NASA and the European Space Agency have managed to do. They've launched this rocket, uh, which is going to take a few years probably before we see the fruits of what it is that they're going to do. But basically, they've launched a rocket at the sun. Solar Orbiter, it's called. 170,000 kilometres per hour. That's how fast we're going around the sun. I, I can't even begin to tell you uh, how confusing that is to me because we are going at that speed. We just had somebody saying, can you not make the uh, uh, Mike Graham show go a little bit slower? No, we're going at 170,000 kilometres an hour, for heaven's sake. Now, coming up tonight, uh, keep an eye on our YouTube channel. If you missed any of the show, uh, just go back and watch it again on YouTube. Uh, if, of course, you have uh, a more of an interest in the longer-form interviews that I do uh, on the off-air programme, I'm going to be, introduce, I'm going to be introducing today uh, a man from the Henry Jackson Society, Dr Paul Stott. He's going to be talking to us about uh, the frequency uh, with which we can now look forward or not to the release of dangerous Islamic extremists. We're going to find out from him precisely 
see what's going on uh, in the world of counter-terrorism in this country. He, of course, is one of the many people who warned the police and warned the judiciary about releasing the guy that ended up getting shot dead on the streets of Streatham the other day. So he's going to have some very interesting things to say. Look out for that later on today. And then tomorrow, uh, we'll be back here at 10 o'clock, of course. There'll be a podcast from today's show that you can listen to. And tomorrow, uh, Georgie Frost is going to join me and we're going to be doing, with Russell Quirk, yet another plank of the week which should be extremely exciting. There are so many contenders. Wackham Phoenix might have to make a return to the list, I'm afraid. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.